Our text today, this morning, I believe invites the Spirit of God to ask that same question in our hearts. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Let's pray as we open up God's Word together. Heavenly Father, would you show us today something about what it means to really trust you? Show us something new. Show us a challenge in front of each of us. I confess your son up here needs courage to preach your word today, and so we ask for that too. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever ridden on an airplane before? Yeah, I think that's that's most of us. Uh, Most of us have had that experience. What you may not be aware of is something that happens kind of behind the scenes while we're riding on the airplane. If you were able to listen into the the cockpit and hear the pilot talking, uh, you would hear the captain call out this one phrase, V1. V1. V1 is the point of no return. After this, the pilot holds his hand on the throttle as the plane accelerates to V1 speed. After V1, it is too late to abort the takeoff. Should anything go wrong, after V1, there just simply is no turning back. Have you reached that place in your walk of faith with God? V1? Full throttle? Holding nothing back? Complete trust? Because I think a lot of us struggle with releasing total control over to God in that way. We're willing to trust God to a point, but we still kind of like to have a backup plan. We, we still kind of like to have an escape hatch uh, when push comes uh, to shove. And so the question in our text this morning asks us, what does it really mean to trust God? What does it look like to have faith in God, to trust him with all of your heart? What does real faith in Jesus look like? Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is probably what bothers you about Christians. It's like we say we believe one thing, but then we don't actually live as if we really believe that. And so to you, it comes off as hypocrisy. And I know that's very, very frustrating. And I get that. Uh, Because we're living in a day and age where people are thirsty and they're hungry for what is real and what is authentic. In the recent book, The Narcissism Epidemic, uh, the author says this, We have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debt, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletes with performance-enhancing drugs, phony celebrities via reality TV, phony genius students with great inflation, a phony national economy with trillions of dollars of government debt, phony feelings of being special among children with parenting and education focused on self-esteem, and phony friends with the social networking explosion." Surrounded by all that phoniness, we'd be wise to ask this question, what is real? And we would be also wise to apply that question to the spiritual realm. What is real faith in God? Is my faith real or is it just another phony thing in this world of phoniness? That's the question God has for us today in James chapter 2. Please meet me there in your own copy of God's Word. Take out your bulletin as a worship guide to follow along with me as well. It's been a couple weeks since we were in the book of James, so let me remind you where we left off, uh, particularly with Pastor Bob's last sermon in the beginning of chapter 2. You remember that in verse 13, uh, James has told us that we are to display as followers of Jesus acts of mercy toward others. And in so doing, we will glorify our God of mercy who has told us mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Then James also said, if we don't display acts of mercy, he said, judgment without mercy will be given to us. Now just think about that for a second. James, are you saying that if I am to avoid the judgment of God, then that is somehow dependent upon me showing mercy to others? Because I thought the central doctrine of Christianity was the teaching that I am saved by faith and faith alone. After all, that's what Pastor Dave said last fall when we went through Ephesians chapter 2, so that no one should boast, right? At least that's what our brother Paul seems to teach us there and in Romans chapter 3 and many other places. James, are you two guys on the same page about this issue? Because it seems like there's a little bit of disagreement there. And today, our brother James, anticipating that question in our minds, picks up right there with verse 14. What good is it? My brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Question mark. Now, in the Greek language, when you ask a question, you can do so in such a way that you imply the answer either positively or negatively. James here implies a negative response. You might translate it this way. That kind of faith has no power to save somebody, does it? Answer, no. Not saving faith. In other words, if there's no works that go along with my profession of faith, James says, I have a false profession of faith. That faith doesn't save Wow. Now, I acknowledge that this passage is a tough one. But sometimes the Bible can be tough. And it's my job as the pastor to display here and expose here what the Word of God says. And so you have to ask and answer the question, is that what the Word of God says? And I think it is. Genuine faith will be accompanied by good works always, 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 without exception. It's kind of like this. Do you know anybody that claims to be a Christian, but you don't see any fruit in their life, no evidence whatsoever? James would ask, what good is a faith like that? How does that profit anyone? For example, you may remember a number of years ago, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler magazine, claimed that he was born again. But you never saw any change, any fruit whatsoever in his life. He just kept on printing pornography. No difference. No fruit. What do we do with that? Well, James would say it's very simple. A faith with no evidence of good works is not a real saving faith. Turns out for Flint, about a year after that, he changed his mind again and rejected Christianity, which is what the Bible says they will do, right? They went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would not have gone out from us. So what do we make of that? Well, let me just put it in point number one. Real faith is not just something you say. In fact, can we say that together? Real faith is not just something you say. Talk is cheap. But real faith is not just something I'm talking about. My talk should always be accompanied by my walk. Someone says, sure, I'm a believer. But then when asked, okay, do you attend church? No. Do you submit your life under the body of uh, a, a board of elders? No. Do you donate any of your time? No. Do you tithe? No. Do you serve anywhere? No. Do you read your Bible? No. Do you confess your sins to another brother and sister in Christ? No. Do you ever share your faith with any unbelievers? No. Do you love your neighbor? Not really. That's real faith? Uh, The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of faith. James would say it's phony. Now, I know that's why this text is so difficult. Because this teaching at the outset seems to be in direct contradiction 
to so many other New Testament passages, especially those written by the Apostle Paul. This is why so many Christians get stuck right here in James chapter 2, and they can't quite figure out how to make it work. Even the great Martin Luther, the reformer himself, once called the epistle of James an epistle of straw. Wow. In fact, he went so far as to say one time, sometimes I feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. Whoa. Jimmy? At the end of Luther's life, though, he came to an understanding. Because although these two seem like different views, although they seem diametrically opposed, he came to understand how you harmonize them. And it's very important that we do make sense of this, right? This issue is really important. We're talking about eternal salvation here, right? We're talking about how to get to heaven. If we don't get this right, then what else matters? We've got to get this right. It's really important that we understand this. And so when we come to the scriptures, we submit to it and we say, the same Spirit of God authored these two books, the same Spirit of God uh, inspired these two writers, the same Spirit of God caused these two men to follow the Lord Jesus. And so here's how I'd like you to picture it. I would like you to picture it not as if Paul and James are standing toe to toe, arguing and combating and fighting with each other, as if they're contradicting each other on the gospel. Instead, I want you to picture Paul and James standing back to back with one another, both defending the exact same gospel, but attacking different enemies of that same gospel. And so Paul is fighting against the problem of legalism. James is fighting against the problem of laziness. Paul is fighting against the problem of thinking my works justify me before God, James is fighting against the problem of it doesn't really matter what I do with my life. Paul's talking about the root of salvation. James is talking about the fruit of salvation. Paul is talking about how I can know I'm a Christian. James is talking about how I can show I'm a Christian. Paul is talking about how to become a believer. James is talking about how to behave as a believer. See, although my good works have nothing to do with my right standing before God, and they are not spiritually meritorious whatsoever. If my faith is indeed a genuine faith in Christ, it will always, always, always manifest itself in good works and good fruit in my life, no exceptions. So the contrast here is not between faith and works. The contrast here is between a dead, useless faith and an alive and useful faith which comes pregnant with good works. Or as John Calvin said it, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. I got so much more work to do. I only did one verse. Let's keep going. Verse 15, James says this, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? So imagine you're going through a tough time. You're destitute. You need help. So you decide to show up with Lois Bennett over there at Feeding Hands Pantry. You you knock on the church door. You explain your situation. You got nothing. You got nowhere to sleep. You can't even feed yourself. And then Lois hears you and she says, "Oh, oh, thanks for sharing. I really want to thank you for coming to Feeding Hands today. Let me tell you something really important. I really care about you. We really care about you. In all sincerity, we want you to hear this. We need you to know that we care. God bless you. 
Have a good day. What would you say? Listen, if you guys really cared, you'd help me get some assistance here. But your actions are telling me that you don't care. What if they said this? I'd love to help, but I only have faith, not works. What would you say? What are you talking about? I've got faith and no works. If you had real faith, you'd do something. You'd act on it because your actions are, all, are, are they're telling me otherwise. They're telling me that your faith is phony. Real faith takes the initiative. It's practical. It gets involved with real people. Now, I know you can't meet everybody's needs. And I know there's such a thing as illegitimate needs, and I'm not talking about that. What, what James is saying here is that if your faith doesn't ever lead you beyond your feelings into actions, something has gone seriously wrong. 1 John 3 says it this way, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. You see, often we see situations that stir up in us the emotion of compassion. But what good is that emotion of compassion if it is not also accompanied by action? In other words, what good is it if you see someone in need and you say, I feel for you? My dear brothers and sisters, real faith is not just something you feel. Can we say that? Real faith is not just something you feel. A few years ago, back in 2014, during the FIFA World Cup, surprisingly, the USA soccer team was doing well. We were beating these countries, these nations that we really should not have been beating, but we were. The fans were getting excited. There was this rallying cry that was coming up from the stadiums when the USA would take the field. Perhaps you remember it, but let me remind you what that cry was. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. Remember that? Man, we were psyched. Man, we were fired up. And then we lost, just like we always do. Just like how this year we didn't even qualify for the World Cup. But we were excited. We had an emotion. We had some feelings. Is that what James is talking about? No. Yes, feelings are part of life. Yes, we're made in the image of God. I'm not saying if you're spiritually mature, you don't feel or we have to suppress our feelings. Feelings are a part of life, but greater than feelings is a sense of real faith and God's calling on you, and your calling calls you above those feelings at times. In fact, at times, because of my faith, I have had to turn and put my face into the full gale wind forces of a feeling. So many times people say, well, I just don't have a peace about this. Well, you might never have a peace about that. I'm not going to give in to my feelings. I'm just going to do what's right according to the word of God. That's what I'm saying. Real faith is not just a feeling. That's why James says in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. Strong language. It's not a sick faith. It's a dead faith. The word dead there refers to something being barren and having no fruit. Faith and works go together. They are linked together. They're kind of like the two terminals on a car battery. What if your car didn't start and I came over and said, no problem, I can jump it. And then I pull up my car and I go in my trunk and I pull out my cables. But let's just say I have one cable. Maybe I just have the black cable. So I hook it up to your negative and my negative and I say, okay, go ahead and crank it. Is your car going to start? No, that's silly. It's incomplete. You got to have both parts to make it work. There's no energy unless you have both. See, without both, one one side, it's just potential energy. You have to actually link together both sides. That's what faith is like. 
Without works, it's dead. You can't separate them. In verse 18, James says this, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And here James imagines an opponent. And so imagine this intellectual guy who says, you're into faith, I'm into works, that's cool, different strokes for different folks, you've got your thing, i got my thing, to each his own. That's how I follow God, that's how you follow God. The problem with that is you've just created an artificial separation. You've just created a false dichotomy between faith and works. You cannot do that, James says. You need both, they go together. If you get on that airplane and the, the, the pilot says over the loudspeaker, um, ladies and gentlemen, which wing of the plane would you like me to use this afternoon on your flight day? You're going to go, hey, 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 uh, this is where I get off the plane, right here, right? Who's this crazy pilot? You need both, faith and works. Faith without works is dead. Now, the opposite is also true, that deeds without faith are useless as well, but that's another sermon for another day. James says this, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. James says, I'm from Missouri, show me. Actions speak louder than words. Actions tell you if my words are genuine or if they're just lip service. Let's say I was in school and I said, I believe my education is very important. Education is a high priority in my life. I believe that education is one of the most important things that we ought to have. And you say, okay, do you study a lot? And I say, no. All right, do you go to the library? No. Do you read your books? No. Do you get your homework done? No. Do you go to class? No. You say you believe your education is important to you? Yeah. Who cares what you say? Your actions are telling me otherwise. It's just like that in the spiritual realm. James's older half-brother taught this same lesson in Matthew chapter 7. Every good tree produces good fruit. Every bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You don't get thistles from fruit trees. You don't get figs from thorn bushes, right? You don't see that kind of contradiction out there in nature. If I go over to a tree and I see apples growing on that tree, I say, that's an apple tree. How do you know, Pastor Dave? It's got apples on it. Man, that guy's smart. We're glad we hired him as our pastor. It's the same truth in the spiritual realm, though. If I've had a genuine encounter with God, I'm going to show some fruit. Let's put it this way. Let's say I'm coming to church today, and it was early, so the roads were still kind of slick, and I, I slid off into an embankment or something, and uh, my car just could, wouldn't keep going, but I was right there on King George Road, so I said, I'll just walk the rest of the way. So I'm walking down King George Road, but then let's say a big old tractor trailer comes barreling down King George Road. And I mean, it's like a 20-ton like logging truck, okay? So it's coming down, and, and it swerves, and it smashes right into me, head-on collision. That's what happened. I was a little late today, guys. Sorry about that, but, you know, uh, accidents happen. What would you say if I told you that? you say, you're telling me this morning you got rammed by a 20-ton logging truck, and there you are up there preaching? I mean, come on. There's no way you could have had an encounter with a 20-ton logging truck and stand up there and give the sermon this morning, right? But if you've had an encounter with Almighty God, you're going to tell me that that's not going to have an impact on your life? Of course it will. That's what James is saying here. Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. Of course not. It's a continual path of growth, two steps forward, one step back. There's progress, though. 
And make no mistake, if your faith is genuine, there ought to be some real tangible fruit there. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Look at your life. Look at how you talk. Look at how you live. Do you look like the world and live like the world and act like the world? Do you love sin and rebellion just like the world? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying good works in the Christian life are motivated by guilt. I'm not here to make you feel guilty, as if we have to do these things. We're obligated to do these things. As followers of Christ, we're not motivated by guilt. We're motivated by the gospel, the power of Christ, faith in Christ. As he lives in us, the overflow of our hearts is such that we are compelled to do good works. It's not duty as much as it is delight where we enjoy good works, especially acts of mercy, James says in verse 13, like giving to the poor, because Jesus said, when you do that, it's like you're doing it to me. And we can't not change. We can't not bear fruit as his followers. Amen? If we don't bear fruit, something's seriously wrong. Oh, Pastor Dave, I believe in Jesus. James says in verse 19, You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you know the demons have a kind of faith? In Mark chapter 5, there's this account where there's this guy. He's possessed by a whole legion of demons. And nobody can restrain this guy. He like literally breaks chains into pieces. Then Jesus shows up on the scene. By the way, when he showed up on the scene, nobody was surprised by the existence of demons. They were surprised by the existence of someone who could control the demons. And this demon actually speaks to Jesus. He says, what business do you have with us, Jesus? We know who you are, son of the most high God. Have you come to torment us before our time? Any resemblance is purely coincidental there. Notice this demon understands exactly who Jesus is. He has a complete orthodox view of the nature and person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. James is saying, just because you mentally understand Christianity, just because you have an understanding of the doctrines of the Bible, maybe you even know the gospel, that's well and good, that's fine, but do you know who else is orthodox in their theology? The demons. Just because you got good theology doesn't mean you're a Christian necessarily. In fact, you might have more in common with a demon than you do with a child of God. The devil's a great theologian, by the way. Did you know that? He used to worship right uh, next to the throne of God. He, He knows a lot more about the God of the Bible than I ever will. He's been around a lot longer than me. He knows theology backwards and forwards. And that way, I guess you could say he believes. Does that kind of belief make the devil pleasing to God? Of course not. Why not? Real faith is not just something you know. Can we say that? Real faith is not just something you know. Of course, faith involves knowledge. Of course, faith involves a mental understanding. But faith is not just mental assent to what's true. That's not the essence of faith in the scriptures. The word for faith is pistis, which means to trust in to cling to, to rely on, to commit myself completely. Faith means I pledge my allegiance to the one true God. That's biblical faith. 
It's always been that way throughout the whole Bible. In fact, that's why he gives us this strong rebuke in verse 20. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You need me to prove that to you? That it's useless, the word useless there means it's good for nothing because it's all about action. Faith without deeds, it's like paint in a can. It's fine, but what good is it while it's still in the can? Open the can and put it on the wall. James says that's what faith without deeds is like. It's not doing you any good unless you put it to use. And here he gives two examples. Two examples of faith from the Old Testament. One is Abraham. The other one is Rahab. I want you to listen carefully to these two examples. And I want you to notice the similarities. And I want you to notice the differences. Let's start with Abraham. 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, synergistically, and his faith was made complete by what he did, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. Now, what does it mean to believe God there? And it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Let me remind you of the story. In Genesis chapter 22, God had finally finally, finally given Abraham his promised son. And then after some time passes, God shows up and tells Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love. Now, God's really pushing it there, isn't he? And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait a minute. You want me to do what? You just gave me my son. Now you want me to... I mean, it's one thing for you to ask me to leave my country and leave my family and follow you to the land that you're going to show me, but this, you see, God had originally asked asked Abraham to trust him with his past, and now he's asking Abraham to trust him with his future. And the question God is asking Abraham is very simple. How important am I to you? How important am I to you? It's hard to really understand this test of faith, isn't it? But this is real. We believe that this is a historical account, right? We we believe God really asked him, that Abraham really did this, that Abraham really trusted in God, that this really happened, right? But how? By faith. He believed God. He believed that somehow, some way, though he could not see it, he trusted that after all God had done for him in his life, after proving himself to Abraham over and over and over, that somehow God would make a way where there seems to be no way. One of my professors used to say it this way. If God gave me Isaac from a dead womb, then surely he can bring him back from a charred altar. You know what happens. Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain, got the wood, got the knife. Isaac is laid down. Abraham takes the knife. And right before he's about to bring down the knife, God stops him and says, Now I know that you fear me. Notice the fear he has. 
It's not the kind of fear that the demons had earlier that James talked about, though, where they shudder. There's a major difference. Both have awe. Both have respect for the power of God. That only Abraham's kind of fear is the one that doesn't cower from God. Instead, he runs to God. With Abraham's fear, he doesn't hide from God. He hides in God. And the difference, the difference is friendship. Abraham is called God's friend. So God says, now I know that you fear me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Did you notice something different there in God's description of Isaac? Your son, your only son, what's missing? The one you love. A deliberate omission by God. Why? You see, Abraham's priorities have been realigned. A line has been drawn. A decision has been made. Now nothing would come between Abraham and his first love for God because anything that would come between me and God, even if it's a good thing, is an idol. You see, God doesn't want us just to trust him. He wants us to trust in him alone. It's not just trust. It's trusting in him alone. Of course, we Christians know that this story points beyond itself. We know that 2,000 years later on the same mountain, Mount Moriah, after this event took place, our Heavenly Father actually did give up His Son. For us, do you know how you know God loves you? Because He did not withhold His Son, His only Son, the one whom He loves from you. And when you understand the gospel, then you can trust Him. If God did not spare His own Son, for us, then how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's trust. That's faith. And the faith comes in a friendship with God. And until you understand the good news of the gospel, you'll never understand that friendship with God. But when you do, you can learn to live just for the beauty and loveliness of God, and you'll be his friend. That's the first example of real faith. The patriarch Abraham. Then he goes on to give a second illustration about Rahab. Take a look at verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The story is how a prostitute helped a couple of Israelite spies in Joshua chapter 2 when they were coming to the city of Jericho. Rahab, the prostitute, risks her life to save the spies. And because of her faith, she does two things. Notice in verse 25. Number one, she gives lodging to the spies. Number two, she sent them out a different way. Both of those actions on her part were risky. They both took a lot of faith. She was harboring enemy spies. That is treason against the government of Jericho. It took guts to do what she did. Now, why did she do it? She had heard about the God of Israel. She believed in God. She did not have a shallow faith. She had a deep faith. This is what real faith looks like. Don't make the mistake of thinking that real faith will never feel risky. Don't make the mistake of saying, I don't know, I just don't quite have a peace about that. You might never have a peace about that. 
Real faith is risky and costly. It kind of has a radical flavor to it. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. That's what she did. Now remember, how did God reward Rahab for her faith? Here's a Gentile, sinful woman from Jericho, prostitute. Yet when I flop open my Bible to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, God has mercy upon her. She gets the highest honor any woman could ever ask for. She gets to be in the very lineage of the Savior of the world. Amazing. I mean, Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho. Wow! Oh, brothers and sisters, this is good news that the holy God of the universe would look beyond rampant sinfulness and draw the most unlikely of persons into his line, into his family. And it's the only reason why any of us are in this room this morning, because our God is merciful. And he has looked past the filth of sin in your life and my life, and he has adopted you and me as his sons and daughters, heirs of his kingdom by faith. So here's two examples. Man, they couldn't be any more different. Abraham and Rahab. One's a man, one's a woman. One's a Jew, one's a Gentile. One's a patriarch, one's a prostitute. One's really somebody, the other one's kind of like nobody. And James uses the exact two opposite extremes here for a very specific person. And the reason is because he wants to tell us, friends, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't even matter what you know. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or a Jew or a Gentile. What really matters to God is you've got to have one very important critical thing in your life, real faith. And it's a faith that's accompanied by good works. So here's my definition that I just kind of made up for the sermon. It's not perfect, but real faith is this. Real faith is an active, risky, radical commitment to following the Lord Jesus no matter the cost. Real faith is an active, risky, radical commitment to following the Lord Jesus no matter the cost, which brings me to you. We call this series The Road Less Traveled, and here we are again facing these two options. This is the road less traveled. This is the road God calls us to take. May our faith be a real faith, not a phony faith. May our faith be active and risky and radical, following the Lord no matter the cost. Is your faith like that? Do you trust God like that? Do you trust God really? With every area of your life, do you trust him to face what's coming for you medically? Do you trust him to say no to temptation, as James told us in chapter 1? Do you trust him to be a doer of the word? Do you trust him with your finances? Do you trust him to forgive the person that you have in your life that you just feel like is unforgivable? Do you trust him to step up to serve? Is your faith real? Have you reached the place of V1 with God? Full surrender. No turning back. Complete trust. Full throttle. Real faith. My friends, the only appropriate response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is real faith. So let me close with one more story, and the worship team can come while I'm telling this story. It's been in the news a lot lately. Maybe you're following it. But I think it illustrates this idea of somebody who has real faith so well. 
Larry Nasser, the USA Gymnastics team doctor, was accused of sexually abusing gymnasts under his care. More than 150 survivors came out against him. And through the trial, these survivors, one by one, confronted him with their testimony. And come to find out, the first person to ever come out publicly against him was also the last person to give her testimony in court, and she is a Christ follower named Rachel Denhalander. Now, you can imagine being the first person to come out and say anything publicly against these terrible crimes would have been very scary for her. So many fears would have flooded her mind. I imagine she thought to herself, but if it happened to me, I've got to ensure that this better not happen to any other little girls. I've got to have faith and do the right thing. See, genuine faith doesn't just benefit us. It is a faith which benefits others. And I imagine her thinking, I, I can't just know what's right. I can't just feel what's right. I can't just say, I've got, I got to have action. And I imagine her thinking how risky this is to accuse this accomplished doctor. And I imagine the fears of wondering, is anybody going to believe me or not? And the uncomfortableness of forcing herself to live through that again. And to wonder whether justice or not would be served. See, her faith involved risk, didn't it? But on the final day, when Rachel confronted Larry Nasser, the last one to address him in court, the last one to confront him, she would stand up, and if you saw the testimony, you saw her acknowledge the heinous crimes that he committed. It was over 30 minutes, her testimony. Something that took tremendous courage. But then, in front of that courtroom, in front of Larry Nasser, she did something that I think required even more faith. This is how she closed her testimony. She looks right at Larry Nasser and she said this, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. And then she went on to say this, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Wow. Right there in front of her enemy, in front of the judge, in front of the whole courtroom, and in, a, in front of a watching world, in a courageous display of faith, she confronts her abuser, offers him forgiveness, and preaches the gospel to everyone watching. What an astonishing display of real faith. Church, can you imagine if we displayed faith like that? Can you imagine a church full of people, of courageous, risk-taking, obedient people who trust and have real faith in Christ Jesus? Can you imagine a church like that? Let's be that church. Amen? Let's pray.